So Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel. And he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you, and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Part of the challenge of doing large sections is you come across lots of small little bits that could occupy our total attention. But we are going to look at the big picture here tonight. We've basically come to the end of what you might call the book of the law. Moses has given, as I've said many times, general principles, specific instructions, blessings and curses. He's made his final appeal to the people. And now we kind of resume the narrative. He's been speaking this whole time, and now what little bit there is, we're back in the story, as he's passing the mantle on to Joshua. But he reassures them that the Lord will be with them. You can imagine being nervous about the passing on of Moses, uh, the, one of the like, top five right, men of God of all time, who's led the people for this long and never gave up on them and did miracles and wrote scripture. And he says, don't be afraid. The Lord will be with you. That's better than Moses, right? And he urges them over and over again to be strong and courageous. Not like before. Because in Numbers 14, when they came upon the land, they were not strong. They were not courageous. They were cowards. And then he calls out Joshua, brings him up, and appoints him to lead next. And we will spend, as you might imagine, an extensive amount of time talking about the character of Joshua when we begin the book that bears his name. For tonight, I want to look at the big picture. Deuteronomy is all about passing on the torch to the next generation, handing off the baton, laying the mantle on their shoulders. And as I've said already, I feel like we've repeated ourselves quite a bit going through this book because that's what the book does, is over and over and over again. It's your turn now. Don't lose this. And passing it on, which is the title tonight, to the next generation is something that we all must do. 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, classic verse about discipleship here. Paul wrote to Timothy, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men, who will then be able to teach others also. So you can see four or five links in the chain there that's being passed on. That it's the Christian's responsibility. And we're going to even think tonight broader than just Christian discipleship. It is a man's responsibility, a woman's responsibility to pass on what they know and what they've learned to the next generation, to leave a legacy, you might say. The difficulty is, as Moses is expressing to the people here, that can be intimidating because we look at ourselves and, you know, sometimes no matter how old you get, you still have moments where you feel like you're five, you know. You still feel like you just got here and everybody's looking to you and asking you questions. And you look at all the lessons you've learned and you know them, but you know what it took to gain those lessons. You took what it took to earn that wisdom. And the thought of just handing it to somebody seems impossible because you're like, I know how hard-headed I was 
to learn this. How am I supposed to teach this to them? It's not that you think that they can't handle it. You're like, I can't pass this on. Especially in this day and age. And this kind of day and age has come before. But it does seem that we're living in a time where the past is just being torn to shreds. That the idea of the wisdom of our elders or the wisdom of our ancestors or certainly the wisdom of God or the apostles or the prophets is just being ripped up and everything's got to be, we even use the word, deconstructed. Take it apart and then build it back again however you want. And this is not just the province of certain radical political groups. This is everywhere. Start fresh. Do the new thing. Do the net. Forget what they did before. That was a different time. But I don't think that's healthy, and I don't think most people think it's healthy. We've got to arrest the damage before we are too far gone with no heritage to cling to anymore. It's amazing to me that in a culture we live in, which prizes other cultures so much. Have you noticed this? Every other cult, we want to know about their language. We want to know the stories. We want to know their dress. We want to preserve it. We want to go to great lengths to make sure it doesn't fall apart. I think that is all very noble. Right? I've been to Epcot. It's fun, right? To see how other people live. But then when it comes to our own, and I'm not even speaking as a patriot here. I'm just speaking as, as somebody that lives here. We don't have that same veneration for our own stories and our own history and our own culture. And I realize that we're no longer a tribe that sits around the council fire and you listen to the old man tell the story or the old woman tell what happened when she was a girl. But we've got to learn how to pass things on before we pass on, right? And he's telling them, don't be afraid because it's your turn now. Joshua, it's up to you. And every one of us will have that day where we're going to have to leave it to somebody else and say, now it's up to you. Well, let's read more of the story. We'll continue to explore this theme. Verse 9. Then Moses wrote this law. Underline that. It's a great apologetics verse. You need to know it. Then Moses wrote this law. And gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the set time, in the year of release, the Feast of Booths, we've discussed that at length, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, we talked about that too, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law. How, how, by the way, how many times have we hit that phrase in this book? Be careful to do all the words of this law. And that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Hear and learn to fear. That would have been a good title too. It's a key passage here and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the apologetics. We spent a great deal of time in it in the first time we talked about this. But when it acknowledges here that Moses wrote the law wrote this law. He is the author of this book. Jesus later will even refer to the things that Moses wrote or other authors will. But as you may remember, the book of Deuteronomy for many people is the linchpin to their deconstruction of the Old Testament and the way that it was written. Just about every redactional theory, every documentary hypothesis, any idea that takes a, not, not politically, but theologically liberal approach to the Old Testament and says, well, Isaiah didn't write this, or Joshua didn't write this, or whatever. It all goes back to Deuteronomy for them. But I want to emphasize to you that it says it right there. Moses wrote this law. 
Jesus confirms it later. So unless the Bible is lying, there it is. But he gives this copy of the book. Right? So much for that idea. Oh, the church didn't care about books until much later. Well, this is even about 1,500 years before the church. So he gave the copy to the leaders and said, read it out loud every seven years for the next generation. And this could either be referring to the entirety of the law, all five books of the Torah, or just Deuteronomy. I mean, lean maybe like 55% towards that one, but it certainly could include all of it. But this is what they were to do for the next generation, that the kids and the sojourners would all hear and learn to fear, which is what he had told them back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. He said, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And there are a few times in scripture where we actually see them doing this. Of course, the constant refrain of the Old Testament is that they did not do any of this stuff. But the few times that they did read the law publicly, the two that I could find and, and remember off the top of my head, was under Josiah in 2 Kings 22. They find the book of the law in the temple, bring it to him, read it out loud to him, and then the king tears his robe and mourns and grieves because he realizes we ain't done any of this stuff. And that means we're going to get cursed like he said we'd be cursed. And that led, the prophetess Huldah speaks for the Lord and leads to a mighty revival under Josiah. Nehemiah chapter 8, when they return from exile, he gets Ezra out there, the priests and the, the scribes, to read the law. And all the people begin to weep because they realize what? We ain't done any of this stuff. No wonder we got cursed or we're going to get cursed again. But that's when Nehemiah comes up and stops them weeping and says, no, instead we're going to go home and have a feast. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Because now we know, which means we can fix it, right? So there's a reason that the Lord asked them to do that. That's also the reason I have insisted on reading word for word just about everything in this book, because there's a power in reading it out loud, isn't there? But it's, it's all about passing it on. Do you see that? Passing it on to the next generation. And again, we, we have that idea that the old is, is no good, that old ideas should die, that bring in the new one. We've kind of got this like Apple computer, iPod, iPhone view of theology and philosophy, that the next one is always going to be better. Why would you want the last model? The new one's going to have extra bells and extra whistles on it. Although as time goes on, we begin to realize, ah, the next thing isn't always better, even when it comes to things like cell phones, right? It's just different. And that new and clean and shiny is always more attractive. But we should never let that kind of idea, yeah, of course you want the better iPhone, but you don't want to apply that same logic to ideas and to philosophy. In fact, the opposite should prevail when it comes to ideas, right? Older is better as a general rule. Because if something is old and it's an idea and people have been living by it by a long time, it's probably got something to say for it. And I realize part of this probably goes back to our own heritage as Americans that we're trying something very new when we were beginning a republic instead of having a king, right? But if you actually go back and read some of these authors, many of even our own founding fathers were skeptical that this could work. Why? Because they're like, but this is this brand new thing we just came up with. You think we're going to make this work? And then they look back, Rome tried it and Rome couldn't make it work. Do we think we can make this work? And there's this constant looking back to the past to inform the, the future. And that's why there were all those heavy checks and balances, because trying to get 13 states to agree, they're all saying, okay, well, if you're going to try this, I want some guarantees. 
of what you're not going to do. So even in the new idea, there was a reverence for the old because they've been tried, they've been tested, they've been proven. And so we hold on to them. Is there a time to retire old ideas? Yes, but you should be much slower to get rid of an old idea than you are to adopt a new one. I think that's a good way to look at it. And it's also important to learn from this that your faith is worth passing on. God sees the, the truth of, of God that was in those books, but not just that, the stories of the people, the heritage, of the, the identity of who they were and where their families had come from and who their parents were, that this was something worth passing on to the next generation. As I said, culture is worth passing on. You always want to evaluate it against the word of God. And I realize that living in the age, we do have to criticize culture an awful lot. But in the best sense of the word, it's good to pass those things on. You know, you go to, when we go to Russia or when we go to Nepal, like, you know, we don't hate them because they're not American. We're like, wow, look at this. Look at this amazing unity that we have in Christ expressed so differently. It's not a bad thing to pass it on. It's not a bad thing to pass your family legacy on. And I realize as individuals today, we're like, I don't care who my parents were. Like, we have probably more people now that are saying things like, I don't want anything to do with my family ever again than has ever been a part of the history ever. You, you think back to the day people would introduce, I am you know, so-and-so, son of whoever, and son of whoever, and my father was a mighty king, and you, were, you boasted in who your family was. It's worth passing that on still to this day. You want the names to be remembered of the people that have gone before you. And also your own wisdom is worth passing on. Just the hard knocks things you've learned about life are worth passing on. They've served you well. Give them for free to the next group. Say, hey, I had to go through this. You don't have to. Here it is. It's important to remember this. Moses knew that after all the pain Israel had gone through to get this thing, he's like, I want you reading it every seven years out loud to everybody so that they get it, they hear, and they learn to fear. Passing it on. It's worth passing on your heritage. Verse 14 and the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. I could just preach that sentence, I think. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tent of meeting that I may commission him. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting, which is the tabernacle. And the Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud. Don't pass over that. That's an incredible appearance of God. And the pillar of cloud stood over the entrance to the tent. So imagine them standing either before or within this swirling tornado. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day. And I will forsake them and hide my face from them. And they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done because they have turned to other gods. Now, therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. 
For I know what they are inclined to do even today before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. And the Lord commissioned Joshua the son of Nun and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. So here is the official ordination of Joshua. Now we're departing the scene of Moses speaking to all the people. They go to the tabernacle and the Shekinah glory, the pillar of cloud, came down and spoke to them and gave Moses kind of a bummer prophecy, didn't he? He says, they're, they're not going to do this, Moses. He prophesies they will surely go astray and incur judgment. So what does he say? I'm commissioning a song from you, Moses. Isn't that cool that God does that? to teach the people about judgment and repentance so that when they learn it and when they've gone astray, they'll remember the song and the song will prompt them to repent. He's putting the seeds of revival and repentance in their hearts even now. Because God knows Israel. He knows that victory will defeat them. It'll lead them to indulgence. It'll lead them to idolatry, which is what happened. Even in the days of Nehemiah, Nehemiah 13, 23 and 24, he says, in those days I saw Jews who had married the women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half their children spoke the language of Ashdod. Ashdod was a city from what people group? Do you know? The Philistines. They spoke the language of the Philistines. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Now that literally happened, but I think that picture is so powerful. That people that have mingled with the world and now their children don't know how to speak the language of Zion. They had failed to pass it on to their kids. The reason we pass these things on is because to fail to learn from the past is to face the future blind. He says, Moses, you've got to teach them this song. You've got to tell them what happens when they go wrong. We have to pass on not just the good things about what could happen, but the potential disasters as well. You've got to pass those things on to the next generation. And it seems we're better at teaching the disasters than we are the lessons we learned from them, but we can't forget this. Eve did not forget when she was talking with the serpent that she was in a garden. She didn't forget how great things were. She didn't forget about the tree of life. She forgot about the consequences. She forgot about death in Genesis 3. She was only listening to the devil telling her how things could be better. And she never put into her mind, yeah, but what could happen if this goes terribly wrong? That's how you evaluate ideas. That's a great way to evaluate a political plan, by the way. Say, okay, this sounds really good. How could this go terribly wrong? Give me like the worst possible Sith Lord version of this going wrong. Like if the worst person in the world got hold of this policy or this idea, what could happen? You have to do that. Because if you're only looking at the benefits, you're going to get deceived. That's how tricksters get you. What about Rehoboam, Solomon's son? He didn't learn from his father because he probably didn't learn the consequences very well. All he thought about was, I'm going to be the greatest king of all time. And they're going to bow down and follow me. Like, or they could completely abandon you and you'll lose your kingdom, which is what happened. We live in an era where we do not believe in regression. We don't think that's even possible. Have you noticed that? Progress. Anything that is new or developing is better. I think that probably at some deep level goes back to an evolutionary idea. But yet you hear this, right? Anytime anybody suggests no to something somebody proposes, 
What they come out and say is, well, this is, you're on the wrong side of history. This is the future. This is the new thing. We're moving forward as if it's only possible to move forward. I, I don't understand this. So just because it's a new idea doesn't mean it's a good idea. And that seems like, doesn't that seem like the most basic, fundamental, like, not the thing to say? Just because it's a new idea doesn't mean it's a good one. But there are folks that have that so deeply ingrained within them that if this is the next step of anything, then it must be better. That's the kind of thinking that does not consider consequences. The kind of person that marches in the streets, for example, for sexual liberation, never realizing that it can lead to the dismantling of male and female as we see today. Because when the prophets in the church spoke out, they were like, you've got to be kidding me. But nobody ever stopped to think, now what, what if we're wrong? What, what could happen here? This is why God is telling Moses, Moses, write them a really scary song. You're going to read it about what will happen if they get it wrong so that they'll have the bad idea in their head too. Tell the bad stories, not just the good ones. Some parents with all the well-meaning in the world will never tell their children where they have stumbled and fallen short. Parents, you've got to. And not like when they're six or seven maybe, but when they're 16 or 17 and they're about to go out into the world, especially dads, take your children aside. And you might think, well, I don't want them to, to think less of me. They won't, I promise you. You take them aside and say, here's how your dad totally blew it and totally messed up. First of all, that will produce a bond between you and your kid you'll never have imagined. His respect for you will go through the roof. Your relationship will change. You'll make him a little bit more of a man by having that conversation with him. Because what you're saying is there's no more secrets. You've reached a new level. Many times some kids have no idea that their parents are sinners until they sin and sin grievously. Don't do that. Tell the bad stories, not just the good ones. If we don't connect in our minds disaster with sin, we'll never repent. Because we'll think that they're two separate things. We'll think this is a disaster and this is a sin. But if you teach people, no, this disaster is connected to this sin in their mind, then when the disaster happens, they'll think, it's probably because of that sin I've committed. Or when they begin to sin, they'll stop because they'll realize that leads to disaster. Mama told me so. Tell the bad news, not just the good news. Verse 24. When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, I love that line. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. That's, that's an old man, right? He's like, God just told me I'm going to die tomorrow. I'm going to tell it like it is. <laughs> Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. I love that play on words. Evil will befall you because you will do what is evil. That's a play on the Hebrew word for evil, which can mean sin or it can just mean disaster. So Moses passes on the law, and it's placed alongside the very Ark of the Covenant. There are other places that say it was placed inside the Ark of the Covenant. I would imagine that as they traveled, it was placed in the Ark, and then as they arrived, it was placed alongside. Or maybe the tradition changed over time. 
Anyway, you see the value of the book, don't you? This is the process of canonization happening in the Bible. This is so important to know. Remember when we did the class on the canon? It was like, well, how do we know that the Bible is the Bible? One of the ways that we talk about this is when it was beginning to function like the Bible. And what you can see with Deuteronomy is it was starting to function like the Bible immediately. So the whole idea that it needed hundreds of years to be verified and confirmed is simply not historical. But I won't get off into all of that again. I just want to make sure we realize here that the writing was always part of it. But here, see that the purpose of the, having the Bible in the holy place is to serve as a witness. As in, like, do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. What did she do last week? As a witness. That what you have done is to break the law. To show them that you should have known better. When you, the priest walks in there representing all the nation with the blood to sprinkle over the Ark of the Covenant, there's a copy of the law as a witness that this is why you're here, because you broke this. It's amazing, again, ideas that we could just dig into all night if we wanted, how very New Testament this section is. You know, because you can, you can start to read the Old Testament like a Pharisee and believe that this was intended to bring salvation to us. It was intended, as Paul reminds us in Romans 7, to lead us to salvation. Because he says, I didn't know covetousness until the law said, thou shalt not covet. And then it awakened all manner of covetous in me. You never realize what you can't do until somebody asks you to do it. And that's the function of the law. It wasn't that we weren't sinners before. It was a witness that we were sinners, that we needed a Savior. We needed the blood to be shed and sprinkled. The Bible... Put plain and simple, the Bible is the deposit that we have to entrust to the next generation. It contains God's truth. Better put, it is God's truth for all of us. This is what made Timothy such a man of God. 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. Paul told him, continue in what you have learned. The word is abide there. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, his mother and grandmother, and how from childhood... You have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul tells him, abide, continue, keep going. I'm about to die. And what does he tell him to hold on to? The scriptures. And that next verse is when he says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. We all know those verses. One of my favorite areas of inquiry and study, as many of you know, is the canon of scripture. How do we know that these books are the right books? And that, that question fascinated me. I never doubted, but I just I needed to know, right? And I spent a lot of time digging into it, and there are so many great answers to this. And the reason is because the word canon, which means the, the authorized list of books, right? But the word canon literally in Greek means read, like a ruler, something that you measure with, that the book in your lap measures your life. And if you don't measure up, then you're wrong, and you've got to get back to it. They're able to make you wise unto salvation. And I get skeptical of certain people who get real technical about what it is that we, we hold to as Christians. You say, well, what do Christians do? Well, we believe the Bible. And they'll go, well, technically... What we do is we believe the gospel. We believe the resurrection. Technically, Jesus is the highest revelation. All of those things I just said are true. But I get really on my toes when I hear somebody really want to make that point very finely. Because usually what they're going to say in a few more sentences is something that's going to denigrate the authority of Scripture. You know, something you learn 
Christian maturity begins by learning things very, very simply. And the next step is learning how complicated those simple things actually are. But the next step in maturity is coming back and realizing that the simplicity you learned at first is really the best way to go about it. So when you were a kid and you said the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me, or Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Well, we don't just know it because the Bible tells us so. We know it because the Holy Spirit testifies. Okay, yeah, you're technically right, but isn't, isn't it just true that this is God's word and this is what we believe? And when people want to really cut that cord too finely, I start to get nervous. All of the things that make us believers are found in Scripture. And this is how God saw fit to preserve knowledge for his people. He could have given us anything. He gave us a book, which means words matter, which means paragraphs and stories and stanzas matter, because that's how God chose to pass them on to us. And that is what we pass on more than anything else to the next generation. And then we get the song. Verse 30 says, Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. God told him, I'm going to inspire a song, Moses. And he says, I want you to teach it to all the people so that when they are exiled, they'll remember it and it will call to reminder that they can repent and be restored. What an amazing thought. You could just talk about that more, that God commissions works of art from people for his purposes. He says, I want you to go write me a song, Moses. Bezalel, I want you to go make this artistic thing and put it together for me. That the Lord is into that kind of stuff. The church used to know that. And then we, we I think we kind of we all became smarty pants. We were like, oh, I'll tell a story about Zach's brother-in-law, Pastor Joel, who was here not long ago. We had to read a book together and it was a great book. But a lot of these academic theology books you read, they'll always have something disparaging to say about people who are not academic theologians. And this one guy was like making what was a fine point, but he was sort of like leaning into it a little much for my taste, where he's talking about how popular Christian uh, art or songs or whatever always just messes everything up and we need to have sound theology, not just look to the popular versions of something. Okay, that's fine, whatever. But then he makes this line, he says, Artists make notoriously bad theologians. To which I immediately responded and said, and theologians make notoriously bad artists. Why does nobody want to listen to my thing? Because it's boring, man. You serve a God that lives in thundercloud and smoke and you ha- all you can think to do is write a 11-point you know, font paper for me to read, man. The Lord likes it when it's done creatively. In Revelation 15, 3, in heaven, they're going to be singing the song of Moses. And that's this right here. Apparently, God really liked this one because he kind of co-wrote it with Moses, right? Now, as we go through this, you guys, obviously, this primarily relates to Israel as a nation. And I never want to deviate from the immediate and most important context of that. But we've talked about that at length in this book and even in Revelation lately. The lessons that are in here are true for everyone to one degree or another. God is not capricious. And as dispensational Christians, sometimes we forget that. We can lean so much into the idea that Israel is God's chosen people that we kind of think that God just doesn't care about the rest of the nations. That God is with us, oh, he just torches us whenever he wants. Uh, No, (laughs) no, that's not true. The way God deals with Israel is supposed to be a lesson for the rest of us of how God deals with people in general. Isn't that right? It is. 
And as we go through this, I'm going to apply this a little differently than maybe I usually would. Because we're talking about passing on, passing it on to the next generation, passing on heritage, passing on legacy, even culture. I look around at our own culture, our own nation, that has not so much forgotten our heritage as determined to shred it to pieces, to deconstruct it. Not just God himself, although that is the most important piece, don't get me wrong here, but even the pieces that, are, that were grown out of that. You know, every nation, even every individual, will take the same truth of God and like the spiritual gifts, will manifest it differently and live it out differently and come up with a different way to honor the Lord. And even those things that are not directly spiritual is being trampled upon. And I want to speak to that a little bit because, of course, the most important thing is leaving behind our godly heritage. But no nation can survive if its people are on a constant mission to rip apart everything that it ever stood for and everything that it ever did, which is the intention of an awful lot of different people. So as we go through this, I want to look at this through a very United States of America lens. And if these words are written about us, because it'll, it made me shudder as I read through it, I'm like, Lord... That could have been said today, and it's going to be said today as we read these first verses now. Here's Moses' song. You can see it's in poetic form in your, in your Bible now. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. Bible does not get enough credit for its poetry, does it? He begins by calling heaven and earth to bear a witness. It reads very much, uh, with, with no disrespect intended, like the beginning of one of Homer's poems, when he calls upon the muse, right? Or at the beginning of Paradise Lost, where he calls upon the Holy Spirit to help him as he does this. His invocation of like, like hear me, right? Here's the beginning. You can imagine that musically this probably would have been sung or played differently. He calls upon heaven and earth to bear witness, which has been done three different times now in the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 4, chapter 30, and chapter 31 all said that heaven and earth will be called to bear witness to this law. And ultimately what he's doing is to proclaim God's name. We have to view our nation, likewise, through a spiritual lens. I believe if you want to look at you know, the United States. Where's the trouble in River City coming from? There's a lot of things you can point to. But the short version is the knowledge of God has been lost and corrupted. Now, if we're going to see any change, any positive address of the issue, if we do not start ascribing greatness to our God and letting His word be like dew to revive us, we're going to miss it. And I have to say this, the restoration of America's soul will not come through a revival of civics, but through a revival of religion in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That's what's going to make a difference. Love for God and love for His Son, Jesus. So likewise, if we want to speak to a nation that is in decline and is running far away and into sin and disaster, it's got to start by calling upon the name of the Lord and exalting Him. Not trying to do some weird halfway secular thing to get people's attention. Stand on the word that has power. Stand on the name that has power. Don't try to convince people of it later. Verse 4. The rock, His work is perfect. For all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. 
They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So Moses here is emphasizing God's fairness, right? That God is fair which is important considering the context here that this song is to be remembered in the middle of disaster and calamity, which people's immediate response would be to say, that's not fair, why would God do this? So he begins by affirming God's righteousness. The people are to be blamed. And he focuses especially here on their ingratitude towards God, that their disobedience and their corruption is ungrateful. You've maybe seen this in somebody's life. Maybe you've said this to a, one of your friend's children or young, young people who say, wouldn't your father be ashamed of you? After everything your mother's done for you and you're going to act like that. This is similar to what the Lord is saying to them here. He calls them to remember the days of old. Boy, is that a word for our time. Remember, first of all, that God created you. And second of all, that God handpicked you. And verse 8 is a fascinating verse that we've discussed before. Implying that all the nations were assigned angelic rulers by the Lord. Because it says there, the sons of God. Now some translations have sons of Israel, but the Hebrew there is bene Elohim. Ben is like Benjamin, it means son. Elohim is the plural, means gods, right? The sons of God. And you see it in Job, that the sons of God gather before the Lord, and so did uh, Satan. That the Lord assigned angelic principalities and powers over every nation. Now, the debate that we're not going to get into tonight, but I think is fascinating to talk about, is was this an act of judgment in God giving over the nations to evil rulers, or did he assign them good rulers, good angelic rulers that then rebelled later? Now, the normal answer to that is, well, all the angels fell at one time. Yes, I've heard that. I don't know if it's as easy to prove in Scripture as we tend to think it is, but it is just interesting to say. The point he's saying is, God set up every nation, its own principalities and powers. But God himself said, I'll take you. And they're supposed to be, feel really special and blessed by that. The point is that Israel was ungrateful after all that. Just as I believe the United States is ungrateful to our God. Can I say that America is God's chosen nation? No, I won't say that. I think we have been one of God's chosen nations. I don't have a problem saying that. And we're going to get into that a little bit more here. But I will say that it is clear through history, in proportion to our piety, God has prospered us. That when we served the Lord, the Lord blessed us. And when we rebelled against the Lord, we have likewise faced a decline. It's ingratitude. When we stand and say, look at all the things we have done. Nebuchadnezzar did that, and it didn't end well for him. But what kind of blessings were they ungrateful for? Verse 10. He, that is the Lord, found him, that is Israel, in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. 
He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd and milk from the flock with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats with the very finest of the wheat, and you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. He describes the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt and through the wilderness to their blessing in the promised land. Israel had need of nothing. We talked last time, their clothes didn't wear out, their shoes didn't wear out, there was water from the rock, there was manna from heaven, and they won every battle. Talk about blessing from slaves to conquerors. That's like the coolest movie you've ever seen. From a slave to being a king. And I told you I wanted to interpret this in light of our own nation. Likewise, we have been blessed and protected by our God. You consider our beginning as a refuge for pilgrims. The piece that everybody wants to always forget in the discussion. Yes, there was economic colonization going on. But what made this place populated was Christians leaving persecution in Europe. We're going to go to a place where we can worship God and nobody can stop us. Hacking homes out of the wilderness. Dying in vast numbers. Not even surviving the crossing, most of them. All the way up to what? The prosperity that we saw. Deliverance from our own king. And a system of freedom where not only are the people free to worship, they're free to live. You're not beholden to anybody. That had never been done, ever. We take it so for granted. I know we just had Memorial Day to remember this. So remember it again. That is not normal. But God gave it to us. And you look at the other blessings throughout the year. How God expanded our territory from sea to shining sea. Victory over every enemy. Prosperity that the world had never even known. Richer than anybody and any nation that ever lived is the one we live in right now. You cannot deny that God did that because only God can do that. You've got to stop messing around on this one. God raises up nations. Nations can't raise themselves up. The Bible calls you to that over and over again. So when you look at all God has done for us to sin and rebel against the Lord would be ingratitude, which is what the Lord is going to accuse Israel of in verse 15. But Yeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. They keep referring to the Lord as the rock in this song. Do you see that? Yeshurun means upright. But he describes not first moral failure, but overindulgence that led to moral failure. Prosperity. You grew fat. You grew stout. You grew sleek. Obviously at this time, fat was a desirable state to be in because that meant that you had food to spare. You got prosperous. You grew sleek. You grew strong. And so you started to kick me away. And that prosperity made you lazy because you didn't earn any of it. It was just given to you. And in that laziness, you started to cultivate these strange and abominable desires to want things 
that baffle the mind. Why would you want that? Because all the normal ones had been satisfied. And that led to idolatry, as they forgot their heritage, as they went after other gods that had never delivered them, but offered more forbidden fruit. And this is where America has lived for a long time, for a century or more. Full of the success of one of the world's mightiest industrial powers. We've had new invention after new invention that has made life easier and easier. We've lived longer and longer and better and better. The amazing military might that we possess. We could blow up the world if we wanted to. And I mean that quite literally. The respect of the rest of the world. Yes, there are nations that hate us, but you travel to most places and they love us because they see what we represent and what we stand for. They aspire to be like us. That's what any nation could possibly hope for. But what did it lead to? Or what is it leading to? To boasting. Look what we've done. Even those that would be on our team with a lot of this stuff need to recognize this. It's not just because the American system is so great. It's not just because the things that we've done are different from anybody else. It's not even that we've got more natural resources than anybody else. It's the Lord that has led these things to us. And that boasting, that laziness, that sloth, receiving things that you didn't fight for or earn, leads to strange desires and abominations. Because all your normal desires are satisfied. You're not worried about being hungry. You're not worried about somebody coming into your house and breaking in and carrying you away. You're not worried about enemies at the gates. You know, we even talk about in our Constitution about having a well-ordered militia is essential. Well, today it's really not. Because we're big and we're strong and we're prosperous and we're at peace with each other. And we debate, why do we even need that anyway? Because we are so far removed from the threat that brought that about. That's blessing. But that blessing has made us indulgent. It's made us perverse. See, I've got to find somewhere else to direct all of this energy. We don't but we think that we need to. And so we start to want things that we shouldn't want and chase things that we shouldn't want. We've grown fat and lazy because we have no needs. So these normally life-saving energies that we have, we redirect them into these piddly little problems, into these foolish little things. All of the ingenuity and all of the strength and all of the might and all of the will gets directed to things that really don't matter trying to fix what isn't broken, trying to destroy things for its own sake. Do you ever read a short story called The Destructors? I read it in school like three times, like three different classes I had to read it, and I never understood it. But it's a story about post-World War II England. And there's a bunch of boys that have survived the war, they survived the Blitz and all that, and they see this old man's house that has been spared from all the destruction. And it's this beautiful old house. And then they, they break into the house and they systematically destroy every single thing in the house. All the windows, all the tiles, everything. And just rip it to the ground. And I never quite understood what it meant until I realized when I started seeing it in people. That when the great conflict is over, when there's nowhere to direct all of that drive, there's nowhere to put all that fire, there's nothing to build, you're going to aim it at destroying things. Shall it be said that America was defeated by victory? That everything the pioneers and the founding fathers and the soldiers and the hardworking men fought for and bled for and died for to be lost when they finally achieved it? May it never be said in my day. Verse 19, 
So that was their attitude. How was God's response to it? Verse 19, the Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. He said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be for they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with a people who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. What's God's response to this ingratitude and this perversion? Anger, wrath, to spurn them, to remove his blessings. God says, my anger reaches to the depths of hell and consumes the whole world. And he says, I'll raise up a foolish nation to provoke you, which is exactly what happened. Habakkuk went back and forth with God. How can you raise up the Chaldeans to judge us after all the foolish idols they've gone after? Is God angry with the U.S.? Well, how could he not be? Because we've done everything that angers him. I don't have a word from the Lord that this is what I say. All I have is the written word of God. And if you read the written word of God about the kind of things that make God angry, and then you look around you and turn on the news, you ought to be shaking in your boots. We began with self-indulgence, which is the perversion of liberty, which is America's greatest value, liberty. But it's turned into license that no one can tell me what to do, not even God. And then we said, and now we're going to look at life and we're going to take a neutral stance. A neutral stance towards the things of God, rather than a godly stance, which is impossible. You are either for God or you are against him. And he who does not gather with me scatters, Jesus said. And so then our indulgence began to run wild towards weirder and weirder and more perverse things, worshiping ourselves worshiping nothing, and now we're tearing apart everything that the Lord helped us to build brick by brick. And it will be a foolish nation that stops us because God's wrath must needs humble American arrogance. It's one thing to be proud of something. It's another thing to be proud in yourself. Verse 23 and I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors the sword shall bereave and indoors terror for young man and woman alike, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. I would have said I'll cut them to pieces and wipe them from human memory. Had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did all this. He promises to heap disasters upon them. Famine and plague and wild beasts and sword. And he says, the only reason I won't totally destroy you is so that the enemies do not themselves boast and say, look what we did to God's people. That's what happened when Assyria had Jerusalem encircled. And Rabshakeh comes up and says, how is your God any different than the other gods that we've conquered? He can't save you. And God goes, oh, really? And he went into their, ba their battlefield and killed 185,000 in one night. God uses affliction and calamity both to judge, but also to chasten, 
to chasten people and wake up their conscience. When people came to Jesus and they said, didn't you hear about those people whose blood mingled with the sacrifice, meaning they were killed as they were worshiping by Rome? And did you hear about the tower that fell over and all those people died in it? And Jesus said, do you think those people were worse sinners and that's why that happened to them? And then Jesus doesn't answer the question. What he said is, I say unto you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Jesus doesn't bother answering the question of why this happened. All he says is, if you don't repent, you've got a big Bible staring at you, telling you what happens when you do things like that. That when disaster comes, you might not know the reason, but it should lead to repentance no matter what. With all the disasters that we face from COVID, to riots, to economic disaster, to corruption, to people mistrusting each other, to the, the increasing temperature of the discourse in the nation. We ought to repent. We ought to repent. Rather than spend our time saying, well, we can't say that God did this because the world just doesn't work that way. The Lord brings disaster. Amos said, disaster does not come to a city unless the Lord has done it. Hard to wriggle out from under that one, isn't it? And Jesus told us that our response to tragedy is to be one of repentance. Even if you ain't done nothing wrong, people, get in there and say, Lord, I repent on behalf of those that will not repent for themselves, like Daniel did, like Nehemiah did, like Jeremiah did, like Jesus did. Is God judging us with all the wild things we're going through? Perhaps. Is he chastening us? Undoubtedly. Is he trying to get the church's attention? Yes. You know how I know? Because it's working. Haven't you noticed that the church is getting leaner and meaner? And I mean that in a good way. That those that are, are just the halfway believers are falling off to the wayside. And the dose is getting more and more concentrated. And men are getting bolder and bolder to speak up and say, enough. Will God spare us? I don't have an answer for that. So we ought to pray. Verse 28 for they are a nation void of counsel, and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. How could one have chased a thousand, and two have put ten thousand to flight, unless their rock had sold them, and the Lord had given them up? For their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. For their vine comes from the vine of Sodom, and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison, their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. He indicts the people with a lack of understanding their predicament. He says, you think you're so stinking smart. If you were smart, you'd be able to look at this last battle you fought and say, we outnumbered them 10,000 to one. How did we lose? If you were so smart, you'd get on your knees and say, that can only be because the Lord was not with us. We stopped evaluating our defeats and our victories like that a long time ago. Evaluating our disasters, our troubles. And we think we're pretty smart, don't we? In fact, we think that makes us smart. Americans think what makes us so smart is that we don't consider God in anything that we do. When the Bible says that makes you an absolute fool, you might ask yourself, why a Christian nation, whether or not we were officially one is hardly the point. A nation filled with lots and lots of Christians, and if there was a God to be worshipped, it was Jesus Christ in his holy trinity. So I ask again, why should a Christian nation flounder or suffer defeat or be struck down by another culture that does not know him? Because we have failed to abide in the vine of Christ. 
and we have plugged into the vine of Sodom and borne the fruit of Sodom. Tomorrow, our nation will have a nationally recognized month to celebrate homosexuality. I don't even have to stretch the metaphor to say that we are of the vine of Sodom and bearing poisonous fruit. We commit the same sins they did. We even boast about it. We call it pride. Nothing is guaranteed. Natural resources are not guaranteed. Military might is not guaranteed. Health is not guaranteed, even for the mightiest nation on the earth. We cannot strut around full of pride and acting smart as the Lord slowly removes His hand of blessing and we don't even think to look to Him for help. Now, we might not be weak, but we sure feel weak, don't we? You want to talk about the national mood is one of dejection and weakness and anger. And the reason is why. Because like Daniel didn't, we have tasted the king's delicacies. And we're not as strong as we would have been if we had stayed on the pure diet of God's word and kept his law. We've given ourselves over to immorality and idolatry. And true wisdom would understand that. Not try to whistle Dixie while the ship is sinking around you. Verse 34, is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. Then he will say, where are their gods? the rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. The Lord speaks first in authority that I have the right to pour out vengeance upon faithless people. And then he speaks in irony, saying, oh, you want help? Cry out to those false gods you worshiped. See if they help you. What do you think is going to save us when the Lord truly sends disaster upon us? Is science going to help us? Science didn't help us in the last one, did it? I don't care how you feel about the political situation. We had to end up just enduring it until it was done, didn't we? Sexual liberation isn't going to help us. We've seen it produces weak people that only care about themselves. Leisure activity won't help us. And how much of our money and time and energy and thought goes towards leisure activity? Secular religion won't help us. You're going to cry out to nothing and no one, the void of space as you stare down your enemies? None of these things are a sure foundation. And yet it's the foundation we're building. God here says, I'm content to let you suffer until you've lost everything and then repent. And I'm glad that the Lord says, I will vindicate and restore my people. But as one of these people that lives here, I think, but what is it going to take until we get to that place? It doesn't bear thinking about It'll all sound good in a hundred years, but to live through it, my heart grows heavy. There's not much that can really stir my spirit to be sad. I'm a pretty cheerful guy. But when I think of the thought of the United States of America scattered and divided, reduced to ashes under the thumb of some other nation, a shadow of its former self, I, I would rather die than see that. I would rather die than watch all of that fall to pieces. But if we keep on building on this foundation of immediacy instead of legacy, we're going to fall. If we keep on thinking about right now and there's no other moment, we won't last because we're not training ourselves and building ourselves to last. 
Verse 39, see now that I, even I am he. There's that name of the Lord, Jehovah God. And there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Come to the end once again, acknowledging that God is the one who holds fate and power in his hand. Disaster only comes to a city if the Lord has done it. And it is up to us to repent and turn to him for healing because he can do it. He kills, but he makes alive. He destroys, but he heals. It's up to God's people to lead the way. Because once that sword is drawn, you can't resist him. Once God is cocked and loaded, there's nothing you can do to stop him except bow the knee. Bow the knee and swear your loyalty to him. Why would you turn your back on a God like that? Is there any greater lie of Satan that God is not worthy of worship? We have made gods in our own images. But we look at this and that doesn't compare to anything that we could make for ourselves. But that's who he is, and that's where he must go. The song ends with verse 43. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. There's hope for you. Moses ends with worship, that those who bow down to God will see him cleanse their land. It's a great partner verse for the one from Chronicles if those who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. And I look back on who we are as a nation. We're the land of the Mayflower pilgrims. We're going to go start a new community and do everything God's way. Jonathan Edwards ministered here. As did George Whitfield and David Brainerd going out into the woods to share the gospel with people that didn't even speak their language, never mind have read the Bible before. It was a pastor, John Leland, who secured religious liberty for us. And it was, if you read the document, by faith in Almighty God that we established those rights that we love so much. We brought the gospel to an ignorant continent. Brave men and women had their hair and scalps cut off and butchered and massacred and their children stolen from them in an effort to bring the gospel to a people that were worshiping rocks and sticks. We eradicated paganism wherever we found it, and that's righteous too. We built amazing seminaries and the biggest churches the world had ever seen. We sent out more missionaries and planted more churches around the world than anybody else had ever even dreamed of. The church ended in justice wherever they found it, up to and most of all including slavery. Everybody wants to excise the church from that process, but you can't. Because that's how God did it. We've had preachers like Frederick Douglass and Dwight Moody and A.W. Tozer and Billy Sunday and Billy Graham and Chuck Smith and Jerry Falwell and Adrian Rogers and Jim Cimbala. That's our heritage. That's where we come from. Don't let anybody steal that from you. The Lord has ever prospered us in proportion to our piety and has swiftly cursed us otherwise. And if we do not arrest this slide right now, we will see only calamity increase in our nation. What America needs, again, is a Holy Ghost revival. 
a return to the old ways, farther back than anyone's willing to go. I'm not talking about 76. I'm not talking about the Enlightenment. I'm not talking about Greece and Rome. I'm talking about Jesus Christ. I'm talking about Mount Sinai. I'm talking about the garden, back to the beginning. Whatever we were and whatever we are, we must become a Christian nation again or we will perish. Isn't it so odd to hear those words come out of our mouths? Yet why would a church hesitate at such a thing? Verse 44, Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I'm warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. The song is finished. You can hear him pleading with them, as I've been pleading with you tonight. The word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is life. We must serve the living God. We're so similar to Israel in so many ways. And I can't wait to draw that out when we get to the book of Joshua. But I pray that we may not be likened unto them in their destruction and exile as we were in our prosperity. Yes, we can apply these things to families. Yes, we should apply them to the church and to the whole world and most of all to the nation of Israel. What about my homeland? That's what I need to see. Because God has placed me here and now and has given me the truth. I cannot be silent. Verse 48, that very day the Lord spoke to Moses, go up this mountain of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the people of Israel for a possession, and die on the mountain which you go up, and be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother died in Mount Hor and was gathered to his people, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I'm giving to the people of Israel. God, one more time, summons Moses to ascend the mountain and die for his own rebellion. Numbers chapter 20, when he struck the rock. Moses had done everything he could up to this point to pass on the truth. And the good news is he's also passing on the promise. Just as when we gather for communion and we do these things in remembrance of Jesus, you're not just passing on bad news. You're passing on good news. We have hope that came to us through so much toil and struggle, not just in the life of Jesus, not just in the life of the church, but even in the life of our own heritage and our own family and our own nation. We've got to pass it on and not let it be taken from us. Because don't be deceived. The devil doesn't care if the Constitution is ripped up. He wants to get at the God that those people worshipped. That's all he cares about. And the promise that we have is that God's word will not return void. That there is hope for all who repent. That there is deliverance and joy just as there was retribution and pain. And I have no voice in our nation. I've got you guys and some people on the radio. But I'm going to speak at the top of my lungs as much as I can to tell everybody to remember Jesus. For there is no salvation in any other name. And if we desire to avert catastrophe, we must repent. Not them. We must repent. For them if they won't do it for themselves. May the Lord grant another thousand years to the United States of America. May our prosperity grow. May our borders expand as we return in faith to our heritage and our God. Let evil perish from our land and may the coming generations never forget as we have forgotten.